0: Welcome to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi, everyone. This is Rohit from Life Self Mastery. And I'm excited to have Ali Jamal, um, who is a syndicate lead at First Check Ventures and has more than 10 years of experience in various product and growth roles at companies like Zynga, Agoda, and Rapi, and most recently at PayClip. Um, Ali, welcome welcome to the show. Yeah,
1: really great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Awesome. So, you know, Ali, Ali I do know you for, for quite some time. Uh, never never had, had a chance to, you know, get on the podcast, but finally did it. Um, I, I loved one, one, one of the newsletters that you shared and a very interesting journey about, you know, about your... Uh, uh, parents uh, who moved to Pakistan, uh, uh, your uh, and and your grandfather, sorry, chose chose Pakistan. Your parents chose the US, and now you moved to Latin America. And one, one of your yeah, you know, uh, ancestors moved to Africa. A super interesting journey, you know. Um, but but uh, yeah, you know, if you can talk about your your childhood and what what are you interested in this crazy world of startups and
1: VC. Yeah, so uh, I grew up in northern Minnesota. Um, you know, my parents were both immigrants. Uh, my mom was from Pakistan. My dad was from Kenya, um, and so you know, it was kind of this really interesting mix, kind of being somebody you know with with this sort of more international background in a place that was um, pretty homogenous in, in a lot of ways, and and kind of very Scandinavian. It was northern Minnesota, um, so so a lot of people, you know. Uh, parents had gone to the same high school their grandparents had gone to the same high school right and and um you know th- there was kind of this joke where like you know we were there for 30 years and even 30 years they- they're still kind of like the new guy on the block right like it doesn't kind of matter how long you're there like because people have just been there for generations um but you know i like to kind of make the joke that i feel like my childhood was a lot of ways kind of like that tv show the wonder years and i don't know if, if everybody out there seen it, but just kind of this very idealistic sort of, uh, you know, kind of mindset, right? Where it was just, I think, pretty safe. And, um, you know, you go and you get in trouble with your friends, but like, you're not really getting any real trouble, right? Like, you would go and you'd go into the woods and and hang out and, and, you know, all this sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, this kind of more classical, small town life was kind of mixed with all these stories of, uh, you know, kind of parents and grandparents and, and all the stuff they had done, um, going and exploring all these other places. And, you know, you're kind of in, in this, in this place where, um, you know, you're able to kind of go and explore other things. And so I was able to explore, I think more academically, like I didn't have to go and try to fit into one box um, from a young age. Right. Like it was also sort of the rise of the internet at this time. And so being able to go and, just learn more and have access to more and more information. And then, you know, I think my parents did a good job of trying to get us exposure to other cultures and other ideas. And so had, you know, been able to travel and see something. But, uh, you know, still very much kind of thought of myself as an American and as, you know, this is where I wanted to be. And then over time, I got more and more exposure to other things in other places and just felt like I could have a bigger impact in markets outside the U.S. than I could have in the
0: U.S. Super, super interesting because you know, um, and another, another thing you mentioned was like you're a South Asian guy from the Mid- Midwest and investing to Latin America. And you also talk about um, you, there are 700 million people in Latin America with the same GDP as China. But but uh, I understand that you, you you work with Rappi and few other you know high growth startups. But 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 why why Latin America and why you would uh, you you investing so much there?
1: Yeah. So one is I just think there's this huge opportunity. But two is I also think it is sort of the culture, right? And and one of the things that I've been really excited by by Latin America is in a lot of ways, it kind of reminds me of what the U.S. was supposed to be when I was growing up, right? The U.S. was supposed to be this place where welcomed immigrants, right? You had people of all different cultures coming together to kind of build and grow and, and do things. And I feel like over time, I've seen the U.S. become more divided and, you know, there, there, there's more, the differences between people are getting emphasized more than the similarities. And, you know, I think there's this division between coasts versus the central parts or Republicans versus Democrats. It just felt very divisive. And it felt like that was becoming a bigger, bigger thing where, you know, in Latin America, I feel like that there is this mix of cultures and uh, of ethnicities and of backgrounds and somehow has been able to mold these things into their culture and become part of their culture, right? And, and so when you go to places like Brazil or Peru or Colombia, there are people that are of the native descent, people that are of European descent, people that are African descent, you know, a lot of Asian uh, descent people that have come together to create this unique culture. Um, and it's reflected in, you know, just walking down the street and the kinds of people you see, it's, it's reflected in, you know, some of the, the you know, uh, I think uh, Sao Paulo has one of the largest Japan towns and in, in Chinatowns in, in the world, right? It's reflected in, in the food. Um, and so it, it just, I felt like it was this idea that, you can be from anywhere you can come here we want you here we want you to help us build in, in a way that i didn't feel the same acceptance in the us and i didn't see it kind of getting better over the last 20 30 years i felt like it's becoming harder and harder and i think that's also why we see more and more people you know come to the us to study and then go back to their home countries um uh, and, and you know i, I wanted to be a part of something that is welcoming to people and welcoming to outsiders and, and Trying to get themselves better through immigration, through hard work, um, and, and I really felt that culture was was pervasive in Latin America. I've got it interesting, and you know, you
0: you led growth at Rappi and Payclip. Um, what, what was the experience, you know, working as an operator in in these high growth growth start- startups, especially in developing economies? So
1: I think it's it's a lot of you know similar challenges to what you have in the U.S., but then you also have to add in the fact that it is a, a growing economy, and and so that means that sometimes there isn't the same infrastructure that you would have, you know, when you're in the U S right. So um, sometimes you just have to be a little bit more scrappy, be more willing to kind of hack things together. Um, there isn't as much information out there, right? So you might not have all the standards that you would have in the U S um, but, but you know, what I found was, you know, there were a ton of really smart people who were, you know, trying to learn and and, and trying to build and grow things. Um, I think the problem has just become a lot bigger and a lot more massive, right? You're just dealing with more employees. You're dealing with more, you know, customers. Everything just seems to be more, especially in these kind of growing environments. And um, there isn't as much of this kind of history of success or legacy there, right? And so you have a lot more people where this is their first exposure to startups. This is their first, uh, the first big thing that's been happening. Um, and so I, I feel like that has created this sort of, uh, more kind of do it yourself type of culture. and Is there's not as much of a community there as there is in San Francisco, right? In San Francisco, you walk 10 feet and you run into another startup and you run into other people that are kind of doing similar things, you know, in, in a lot of places in Latin America, you're, you're the one that's doing it. And so, um, you know, you have to kind of build out even a lot of the other building blocks in order to plug into the finance system, in order to plug into the customer, whatever, you know, having you know Spanish as a, as your default language instead of English, like some of these things just become more challenging. Um, and having to kind of start from uh base zero, but I felt like that also becomes a sense of pride within the company, right? And the fact that you are kind of going through and building these things from scratch, um, that you know, this is the thing that is building the startup ecosystem in colombia in mexico in in latin america um it's really like a dedication that that is hard to replicate got interesting and um uh, you know um i got to know about
0: the syndicate and fund when you syndicate a shop circle which is like one of the best bets i made um and and and, you know the founders are based in london I, I i met with Kain and luca Um, And there is, you know, I I think more than $120 million from investors like QD. How did you get to syndicate, you know, a company like Shop Circle? And, and, you know, uh, did you get to meet with them? Obviously, because this syndication happened during the time of COVID, if I'm not wrong. Yeah.
1: So, um, you know, they actually had uh, slid into my DMs, as they say, um, as the young people say, on LinkedIn. And, uh, you know, we sent some messages back and forth. And, you know, what they were proposing seemed interesting. So we hopped on, um, several zoom calls, um, really kind of, you know, I had some familiarity with, with similar models and, and, you know, we, they were able to answer all the questions I had and I thought, you know, present themselves in, in a really strong way. And, you know, we, this is one of the companies where again, we kind of came in as one of the little first checks, right? So for me, it really is about trying to find these sorts of, of, uh, game changing companies as early as possible. And so they were, I think the first company in Europe that we syndicated through, through, through first, first check, um, and, you know, they've had this incredible journey from, from when we invested now almost three years ago, um, to today and, and, uh, you know, top us investors, top international investors that have come in They've continued to execute really well. Um, and, you know, I think. just kind of proves out the the thesis a little bit more right like ideas basically it is possible to go and find these people a bit earlier if you're willing to look for it and when you make these bets earlier you get better returns but it also is Doing more good for the ecosystem, and so that's really what I find the most
0: exciting. And from what I understand, you know, you're you're running syndicate the syndicate along with your along with your job. So how much time did you spend your time, you know, running the syndicate along with with the full-time job? Yeah.
1: So when I started, I was working full-time at, at Clip, yeah. and then kind of part-time at, on, on the syndicate, and it kind of slowly crept up more and more. And then um, eventually, I decided to kind of leave my job to focus on the syndicate um, and investing full-time. Um, so in the beginning, you know, it, it very quickly starts creeping up from 20 hours a week to 30 hours a week to 40 hours a week. And then all of a sudden, it's all you're kind of thinking about outside of that. So it wasn't just the hours you're working, but you're like obsession, right? And, and uh, this is also kind of during the pandemic. And so there's very little else to kind of get obsessed by. And so, um, you know, I was staying with my parents and I just kept on talking about deals at the time. My mom was just like, shut up. We don't care about startups. All you do is talk about startups. And it's true, right? Because I was just spending all my time either at work or talking to startups. And um, you know, she probably said it a little bit nicer than that, but um, you know, it does kind of like when you find, you know, your life's calling, you know, you do become a bit obsessed. You do become probably a bit boring. And I might still be a bit boring because I am kind of obsessed with this stuff and this is all I'm thinking about. Like all those other sorts of passions and hobbies that I used to have have kind of become, you know distant like 10s and 12s and 15ths because 1 through 10 is kind of all startups so interesting and and follow syndicate you know how did how did you
0: instill a sense of urgency in lps to move and come into the uh come into an fund because sometimes it becomes difficult for them to you know push along and close their deal especially in 2023
1: yeah so i think for me it was actually the opposite i didn't want to create these false senses of urgency or 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 you know pressure or pressure tactics I wanted people to come in when they felt comfortable. And so, you know, I think that actually was part of my, my value prop is, Hey, come join the syndicate. You can see the deals I'm doing. When you see one that speaks to you, you can invest and you can invest as little as a thousand dollars. You know, I don't need you to make this huge leap of faith and just start giving me money or, or, or have to trust me right off the bat. Come and check this out. Find the things that you get excited by. Find the things that you think are going to do well. And, you know, it it, is really easy to go and ask the GP. Okay. What's your, what's your hit rate? What's your IRR? And and the honest answer, right? Is my IRR is going to be very different than your IRR uh, as a LP. I don't expect you to invest in every single one of my deal. Uh, I don't expect you to invest the same amount as I do in every single one of my deals. And so you are naturally going to have different IRRs than what the, what the GP has. Um, and so because of that, I think it is this really unique opportunity in a way for you to make the, you know, you to support the types of things that you believe in as well. And I think that's kind of the beauty of the syndicate is that you get to choose what you believe in. You get to back, the kinds of founders that you want to back. I like backing early stage founders. That's why I call my fund first check. There are a lot of other syndicates out there where they will do, you know, later stage deals. There are funds out there dedicated to specific things like climate or crypto or AI. You know, I think that that the biggest opportunities when you invest in, in companies at the early stages and when you back founders at the early stages, right? So what is the thing that you believe uh, that you want to support? Who are the types of people that you want to support? What are the industries that you want to support? What do you think are going to be the things that are going to be most important over the next 10, 15, 20 years? And I think that's the really cool part about this, right? Is that yeah, it's it's hopefully a great way to make money, but it's also a great way to back the things that you want to see in the world and into shape the world into the world that you want to be a part of.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, you know, you 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 mentioned about you know investing in pre-seed and seed, uh, and a lot of times you know um, you have uh, you know multi-stage investors. Uh, funds who are investing into in, in seed uh, and gives a signal like uh, like uh, a big brand like um, A16Z or is investing uh, is it is it is it a right signal for uh, for a founder you know, to to look at a multi stage uh, fund offer uh, at a seed stage uh, or or do you think you know uh, because a lot of investors uh, I'm talking about LPs who are investing into syndicates look at such big names uh, which are investing into, into these companies. Um, uh, what's your view on this? Uh, what advice would you give to LPs, uh, uh on this?
1: Yeah. So I, I think these big name funds have big names for a reason, right? That they're, they're really great funds, right? And does this mean that they are specializing in these stages, right? A lot of these funds are, are, you know, focusing on, on later stages of writing bigger checks. Um, and, and you know, I often see it as, as the opposite, right? Like other than like, oh, the syndicate is investing and then they're getting follow-ons from these big name funds. These people lead with the fact that there's these big name funds that are leading the round. And, you know, I think the question then that I have is, that, okay, if these big name funds are leading the round and they really believe in it, right? These are funds that have multi-billion dollar funds that they can go in and do this stuff. Why did you as a syndicate lead get an allocation in this $5 million round, right? Like Any of these funds can easily write the full 5 million. Why did they write the full 5 million? How are you the next best person to get an allocation? Like, how did they not send this to their LPs or to other funds that they work with? Right. Like, what is the way that you got access to this, that, that, you know, is really happening. And, you know, I think that is. Like the bigger question, right? So like, if you're getting access because that guy was your college roommate or something, then totally makes sense that you should have access. It totally makes sense that they would save a spot for you. If somehow somebody's passing this, this, this deal to you and it's supposed to be the super hot deal and it's supposed to have all these great investors involved, it seems like something's fishy there. Um, so personally, I, I tend not to take it as a signal and I try to look at each company individually even the best funds, right, are, are getting nine out of 10 of these these investments wrong. So you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say like, Oh, just because this big name fund is investing, it definitely means this thing's a winner. Uh, that being said, right, like, they have picked a lot of winners in the past, they have also struck out a lot of the past, so you don't go through and, and look at all the things they made bets on that that didn't work out, right. Um, and, and so, you know, my, my perspective is you should be making investments in companies that you really believe in and that kind of support the ideals and the thesis that you have. The fact that some other name investor is coming in is a nice to have, but but shouldn't it be something that you really base your sole decision on?
0: Well, no, absolutely. I totally, totally agree with this. Um, and, you know, 2023 had been, have been, have been a difficult year for emerging managers, uh, but, but will we see a, a ton of venture funds getting shut down um because a lot of uh, a lot of vc firms have not raised an extra round of uh you know of funding for their funds uh, and we are yet to see you know uh, announcement on that but but what is your view on this
1: so you know i think there's different uh, different things happening all at the same time so um you know a, a vc a vc fund typically invests over a three to five year time horizon right. so um you know they typically have thresholds of, of where they how much they have to have deployed before they can go and start fundraising again. So, you know, it really kind of depends on all these different factors of when they started their fund, when they actually started their investment period, how much have they deployed, what do they deploy in, how do those, what do those look like? Um, And I think in general, right, that there's a lot more money sitting on the sidelines now than there was three years ago or four years ago. A lot of people in general are, are seeing a lot of, you know, issues in the potential market. We're also in an election year in the U.S., an election year in, in several other countries that also sometimes tends to worry capital allocators. We've seen, you know, huge issues in the public markets as well, right? And in a lot of companies and not doing so well after IPO. Um, and so I think it has been, in general, a tougher year for all investors. Um, I actually think it's not like, like if you already have the ability to raise a fund one, usually you are able then to raise a fund two, right? And then the window of how much, because you've only had three or four years since you raised your fund one, there's really not enough of a history there for them to judge your track record. So I think with most fund ones, they're really betting on on you as a as a person and a fund manager, the access you can get. Um, and so I, I think people are going to be making those same bets into your fund too, uh, because there's not going to be enough there yet to really make that judgment. So I think the people that are really going to be struggling are those that are trying to go from fund two to fund three or fund three to fund four when you start to need to have a track record. And if those were in companies that are now getting marked down, and you know you know they're having more companies that blow up, and then I think. That can make it tougher when your track record is bad. And then on the other side, right, I think for emerging managers, um, you know, it it is tougher to make the bets into emerging managers and into first-time managers, uh, usually because they don't have that track record. Um, And and so, you know, I think some funds are going to shut down. Some funds might choose not to raise a new fund. We're already seeing some of these announcements kind of happen. We also might see a general reshuffle, right? And, And if... You know, fund two did not really make that much money. And fund one is it looking that great. And they don't think there's a great chance of doing a fund three. You know, they might different GPs might split up, they might go off and do their own things, they might rename the, the fund and, and change the thesis or whatever, right? To try to try to shift to try to pivot to try to you know use less of that record and use more of the of their own. So I think it really depends fund to fund and and um, you know, and I, mean, I think. It's going to take a while for everything to shake out and it's not just going to happen overnight. So I think it's going to continue to be tough to raise new funds and to raise fund threes and fours, you know, for the next several years. Okay. Okay. Got it. And, and will you see
0: more or less of uh, m in the next you know, 12 to 24 months?
1: So, you know, I think what's going to happen is we're going to see more and more companies that, um, you know, raise big rounds of 2020 or 2021 that, now need to go to market. And um, it's gonna partially depend on how the investors um, are feeling and if they're willing to continue to make that bet. And if, if they've kind of run out of runway, they haven't been able to get to cash flow positive and they're not able to get more cash from uh, VC, I think the next the next obvious um, the next obvious path is through acquisition. So I, I think that 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 will lead to to MA. But you know oftentimes we think about m a as, as being this you know positive outcome because everything's going up and, and it might actually be more aqua hires and might be more you know bailing out companies that are doing so well maybe it will be acquiring the technology for, for better purposes but I just think there, there's a lot of reasons why um, a company can get acquired and they might not always be the positive ones that are Sorry. and 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 what advice
0: would you give to you know uh, uh, managers and VC funds on when and and how to take liquidity uh, in in the best positions because it's always a difficult uh, decision.
1: Yeah, uh, so I think the biggest thing, right, is kind of understanding. One is kind of having your own thoughts on on the company, how the company's doing, what you think is gonna happen, but then also understanding your LPs, right? Because ultimately, and you as a GP are the shepherd for for these other people's money, right? And, and so if they want more liquidity right now because they have whatever, whatever other things happening, um, you know, you should be thinking about and exploring the options there. If they also still see a lot of potential in in the company's portfolio and want to continue to support them, you know, you should probably also continue to figure out ways to do that. And and so um, there's not a a, a one answer, right? It's really going to depend on on all these different factors, Um, you know, there's this kind of constant struggle between, you know, letting your money ride or, or taking it out. And, and it's just, a you know, I, th- I think anybody just says one thing versus the other, is, 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 is it really a value situation? Cause there's a lot of nuance to
0: it. Got it. And, um, you know, um, I, I come from e-commerce, uh, SaaS. Um, uh, side of the business and, and also because of my Indian background, I've seen a lot of IPOs which have happened in the last couple of uh, couple of years, which is, a, which is a good signal for the Indian market ecosystem, but also for SaaS, e-commerce SaaS companies like ClaviO uh, has a, had a good IPO. But do you think uh, the IPO windows are going to crack open in the next 12, 24, 24 months?
1: I think... The the situation there is a lot of these companies have raised big rounds at really high valuations again in 2020 and 2021. And, you know, I don't think the public markets are necessarily going to support those previous valuations. And so, you know, people are going to have to make a bet about whether they think the market is going to get better over the next 12 to 24 months and whether it makes sense to start this IPO process now, Um, right? I think the reality is a lot of these companies Maybe half uh, of these unicorns, right, are actually probably no longer unicorns and are are probably, you know, we're seeing it all the time now in the secondaries market where things are trading at, you know, 40, 50, 60 percent of what their last round was. And so, you know, do the founders, do the investors in the company want to realize those losses and want to have the company go public, even as a. 50% Fifty percent off what they invested in in the last round, or would they rather continue to support uh, support the company and give them more cash at the old valuation or at some other valuation to be able to keep the value on their books at, at these different, you know, at the higher valuation that their last round was. Uh, and so I think sometimes it's just the politics of it, right? And again, if, if you're a lead in investor and you're about to kick off the fundraising for your next round or for your next VC fund. Um, you probably don't want to take the mark down. And so maybe you're willing to throw in a little bit more money at that old valuation, even if it's higher than what it should be, because you want to be able to show those markups and keep the markups high, um, as you go out to raise your next fund. Um, and so I think there's going to be some mix of, um, you know, how the public markets are reacting, how the investors are feeling and how your board is, what the board is trying to do. And then what the, what the startup itself thinks. I think all these factors are going to play a role, uh, and, and so I think if the market rebounds, then I, I think you know a lot more companies are going to want to go public. Um, but again, I think at least for the next you know eight nine months until after the election, I, I think it, it's it's always a tricky situation.
0: Very interesting, and um, uh, you know Peter Livingston from Unpopular Ventures, um, who's also in uh, you know angel syndicate and also guest on the podcast, uh, he mentioned something about AI that AI models will end up like airlines. Uh, which means it's going to be very important, provide a lot of value to society, but terrible business, uh businesses themselves, you know. So AI had a had a very interesting year, especially, you know, open AI um had the revenues of oh, close to around 1.4 billion dollars. Uh, and looks like you know a lot of money is being put into AI. But but what are your thoughts about, you know, AI business models? And do you you agree with, you know, Peter's statement uh, about, you know, AI business models and uh, and what's the lookout for them in 2024?
1: So I'm not an expert on AI. And, uh, you know, I, I understand where, where Peter's coming from, where, uh, you know, these these same models are going to end up competing with each other just drive the prices down. Right. Um, I think, again, I think that can be said for a lot of things. And then, you know, I think the same way it's kind of said in in, in finance and fintechs, what you end up, end up having is having more specialized fintechs where you're able to kind of, create higher margins or create different opportunities because of the more specialization. So I think, you know, even though all these, these base AI models might end up competing with each other. There might be specialized models that end up having specialized trained sets, which, um, you know, are going to be treated differently or probably to really have higher margins and be able to, to grow and scale. Um, and then I think along with that, right, part of it is um, when you're thinking about AI, um, I think a lot more of the solutions with AI are going to be global solutions versus localized solutions. So I think something like a fintech, for example, you're going to have a different solutions in, in India versus the U.S. just because you have different banking systems to plug into, different regulations. to um, And right now, there isn't that much regulation and compliance on AI. And so I think you're going to be able to have kind of global winners that kind of take over the whole market versus the localized winners. Um, and and so um, you know I, I think that that global opportunity kind of will depend on on how much data is flowing into there and if they're able to create a monopoly or duopoly or or, or how much it is versus uh, you know I, I think when you kind of go back to Peter's analogy the airlines I think part of the reason why it becomes more of this commodity type thing is that there's just so many people that are able to offer similar services but if you have, Exclusive data and and can make a better system, right? Um, I think there's an opportunity there, and you know I think we've seen this with with other businesses in the past. And when you think about something like you know search engines, right? At one point, search engines was a commodity, and then Google was able to take enough data and improve the algorithms enough where they were able to extract a lot more value. And you know, I don't, I feel like they're no longer seen as just a commodity with low margins and search makes a ton of money for, um, for a lot of different products. And, um, you know, I, I think when we think about AI, I think it's going to be an overall shifting of the mindset and, and how that's going to change all these other components, right? I think it's going to change, you know, search. I think it's going to change discovery. I think it might change a lot of different components. Um, and so how does that play out? Um, And how is that AI actually being trained to understand the customer and the market and uh, the decision process, um, I think is really going to end up making the impact on on the margins that are going to be able to exist. So interesting.
0: And, uh, you know, you've you've been an active investor. I was just wondering, you know, what's your biggest investment uh, uh, investing win and and, and does it change the way you look at uh, your approach to
1: investing? Um, Biggest win. So far, uh, is probably our first investment, which was in Yummy, the oh. Venezuelan super app. Um, And, you know, I, I think investing in Venezuela at that time, it was pretty controversial. Uh, and, and, you know, it may be seen as a non-consensus investment, but I felt like it was like, even though at the, that time it was early, I felt like it, it just made so much sense to me that it, it felt like it had to become consensus. So, um, you know, I think that's kind of become a larger part of my thesis is is, you know, not making necessarily investments that are non-consensus, but making investments that are consensus but early, so that way we end up with the with the benefit of of being early.
0: And what's been your biggest investment miss, like your anti-VC portfolio? Um,
1: Honestly, there were a couple of companies where, uh, you know, we just couldn't move quickly enough, and and so it wasn't that I necessarily didn't believe in the company, but that you know, around was happening. And, you know, it was hard to get the syndicate involved, or I forgot, you know, and I didn't follow up on it on with an email or or something, and then ended up, you know, missing out. So there are a couple of companies that we had the opportunity to invest in, uh, kind of very, very early that ended up becoming unicorns. um, Just because of the speed of, of syndicating is just so much slower than the speed of having a direct fund to invest.
0: But, and, and in your view, you know, what's the single biggest area of the misalignment between a GP and an LP? Um,
1: I think in a lot of ways, for GPs, it does well with funds, right? It really does start to become a an AUM game because nice. you are making, you know, the the management fee on it, um, and and so I would think that that you know at some point, management fees should probably be capped at, at, at lower rates. Nice. I think the problem is that, you know. As an emerging manager, the the management fee is that same percentage. And so like you have a $10 million fund and and you have a a billion dollar fund. I don't think you're doing a hundred times more work with that billion dollar fund, but you're making a hundred times more money in management fees, right? And there's cost to set up the legal cost to set up, whatever. And so I think the system doesn't really is is sort of set up to benefit the incumbents and, and I think that also ends up becoming part of the problem, right? Is that as you become an incumbent, you end up relying more and more on the manager fees as your individual emerging manager, you end up becoming very reliant on the kind of carry because the management fees coming in initially aren't going to be that beneficial. And so I think that might also end up skewing how you make your investments or your decision process.
0: Got it. And um, Ali, I quickly want to do the top three. What's a favorite business book?
1: Um, So it might not be a traditional business book, but I read The Prince when I was, uh, you know, in middle school. And I feel like that, you know, weird way is, you know, probably one of the better business books out there. Just trying to get yourself to think about the logic about how people make decisions and how to think about uh, how to think about situations, how to you know go through the process of negotiating um and, and uh you know it, it's not a traditional business book but just more traditional thought process and i think it could be super valuable
0: got it no, absolutely put that in the show notes and you know if you could go back in time when you started work uh, working in startups and started investing in, into into startups what is the one thing you would have focused on or done thing differently
1: um i think i wish i um thought it out a little bit more in the beginning and, you know, I think whenever you start working or whenever you start investing, you kind of take it as this is my, this is the whole thing I'm going to do. And when you do that, instead of treating, like like you have different kind of goals and different outcomes versus thinking about this as this is day one on a 20, 30, 40 year journey. And I think if you start to think about this, this is going to be day one on a 30 year journey. You know, you're not necessarily going for a home run on your first investment. You know, you want to, the whole idea would be, let's pick up as much knowledge as possible. Right. And and right. so, um, you know, I think when I first started um, angel investing, I was writing checks that were bigger in size than they probably should have been because I was trying to, you know, get some sort of oversized return or, 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 or you know, get some big home run and, Oh, I want to get a year's worth of salary out of this one back. Um, I think it's better to try to make a, uh, to try to learn as much as possible by making smaller investments and, and, learn from each of these investments. Uh, And I think the same thing would be true for the startups themselves, right? Like you kind of jump into working in a startup, you dedicate your whole life to this thing and that's supposed to be what you're doing for the next 10 years. I think if you really think about it from more of a learning perspective, right? Then you would give yourself different goals and you might set up that you wanna transition in in your role or transition into new opportunities on a more regular schedule. And so I think uh, I ended up kind of probably sticking around some companies longer than I should have um, sticking around in roles longer than I should have because um, you kind of get comfortable in, in uh, rather than kind of forcing myself out of my comfort zone or forcing myself to learn more and thinking about this longer term journey and you know you kind of get stuck on oh, I need to have a role with this title or I need to have this or that. And really you know the the, the more random things I've learned or the more random products I've, I've done have actually probably been more beneficial than you know just trying to move up the chain from, senior to manager or whatever. It might
0: have been. Got it. And, and what, what's your favorite online tool? For example, Gmail, Slack. So, so my favorite uh, online tool, for example, mm-hmm. Gmail, uh, Slack.
1: I use LinkedIn a lot. I feel like I'm always on LinkedIn. It's just uh, like I don't have inbox zero. I, I have inbox zero on LinkedIn, right? It's just very easy. I feel like um, I get my news from there. I see what people are up to. People actually update it, you know, versus, you know, Facebook or or whatever. And then, um, you know, I think it's hard to work in emerging markets without WhatsApp, everybody just uses WhatsApp. And so, um, it's probably that combination of LinkedIn and WhatsApp, being able to like quickly correspond with people back and forth and being able to look up, you know, what's happening, what, what's had companies, who, who's doing what and what's changing and shifting.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think LinkedIn and WhatsApp are, are, are two of my favorite tools as well. And Ali, what's the best way people can reach out to you and know more about our segment?
1: Yeah. So even though LinkedIn and WhatsApp are both my favorite, it's probably just got to be LinkedIn. Reach out to me on WhatsApp. but I don't know you. It's kind of weird. <laughs> uh, but totally, totally happy to, to have you reach out on LinkedIn. And, you know, I try to respond to all the messages I get. Um, and, and so, um, you know, just make it a clear introduction and tell me what you're looking for and I'll try to do my best to, to try to see if I can be helpful.
0: Sure, absolutely. We'll put that in our show notes. Um, Ali, thank you so much for taking your time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you.
1: Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.